we're in a series called A New Way Forward. We've got two weeks to go studying the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgot your Bible today, if you're visiting with us need a Bible, just raise your hand. I really want to get God's Word in your hand. I want um, you to be able to read uh, what I'm talking about this morning. The passage that we're going to look at um, is definitely an important one. It's interesting, this week a uh, pastor from Georgia, a guy by the name of Andy Stanley, made national news. There was an article on him in the Christian Post and in uh, um, uh, Christianity Today. And he, he came out, it was a controversial article. He says, when I preach, I no longer says, because the Bible says so. He, he doesn't reference the Bible as an authority anymore, not because he doesn't believe that the Bible's authority, uh, an authority, he does. He just knows that most of the people that are listening to him preach don't believe the Bible's an authority. So he's in this catch-22 of he can't just refer to the Bible as an authority, maybe like most churches could 20 or 30 years ago, because he realizes the audience that is hearing him preach does not agree with that premise. So do me, do me a favor, just if you've found your way to Matthew 7 and you have a Bible, just raise it up for a minute. Even if it's a phone, I'm not going to diss on you. Um, okay, so... When we hold Bibles here, I would hope that you guys in our church, that many of you would view this as an authority. Not, not just historically accurate, like I can read a, a biography of Alexander Hamilton or George Washington or someone, and I can believe that it's historically accurate. That, that's one thing. But you need to know that as a church and as the pastors and elders here, we believe that the Bible's an authority in our life, that when it speaks to something, it needs to be applied. And I say all of that because the passage that we're looking at this morning is actually a difficult one. Jesus is uh, not afraid to say hard things. Sometimes what he says is quite polarizing. And this morning, he's going to say some things that bring us to a crisis point, bring us to a decision point. And for those of you who in this room would be honest enough to say to yourself, I, I like church, I, I like the worship, but I'm really not sure that the Bible's an authority, and I know there's some that feel that way, I would like you to consider this morning, just this morning, what, what if it was an authority? And what if Jesus really says what this text says, and what he says he really meant because it's true? Because if what Jesus teaches this morning is real and it is true, then I would argue the verses that we're looking at this morning are probably some of the most important words that have ever been spoken in any language in all of human history. Because Jesus is going to polarize all of humanity into one of two camps. He's going to talk about two roads, two gates, two trees, two houses, and he's gonna force people to make a choice. The big idea this morning is this, Jesus is forcing a choice, yes or no, and I'm not sure is no. So Jesus is forcing a choice, yes or no, and answer, I'm not sure, that's a no. Throughout this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has been testing our hearts. People are gathered to Jesus, they're there to hear him speak, it's early in his ministry, and they're there for many different reasons. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are there for Jesus to basically validate their self-righteousness. They will leave disappointed. There are others there that are looking for a miracle. They are looking for Jesus in some way to make their life easier. There are others there that are looking for a Messiah to uh, release them from the oppression 
of Roman rule. And some will leave this sermon disappointed by the things Jesus says, but the true followers will be separated from the masses that are currently following. And as we get to this point of the message, Jesus is actually at his invitation. He is asking people to make a choice. So we're going to pick it up in verse 13 of Matthew 7. First point is this, two gates make a choice. Matthew 13 begins by saying, enter by the narrow gate. That's a command. It's an invitation. It is something that requires a response, movement on our part. And when he says enter by the narrow gate, he's going to describe a narrow gate and a wide gate. Please note that he doesn't say don't enter the wide gate. This isn't should I enter the narrow gate or should I enter the wide gate? The warning is or the command is enter the narrow gate. We're on the wide road. We've gone through the wide gate. That is our natural tendency. You don't have to make a choice to stay on the wide road. That's where we begin our journey. Jesus calls us to action, enter by the narrow gate. And like he has many times in this sermon, he gives a command and then he gives you the reasons why he gives you the command. He does this in this section of the message as well. So the command is enter by the narrow gate. Here's the first reason, because many miss it. He says in verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So this message is at the beginning of Christ's ministry. At the end of his ministry, when he is in Jerusalem, just days before he is to be crucified, we read in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the fact that he will die, be resurrected, and one day he'll come again. And he says, before I come again, Here's what the world's going to look like. And he says this, in those days, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. So if many will be misled, if most love will grow cold, if many are on the wide road, the question is, how many is many? Like if I were to look at this room, If many are on the wide road, is that half? Is that more than half? It would seem to me that many, contrasted to few, would mean that the majority of humanity is on the wide road. Maybe the entire um, lower section is on the wide road. Maybe it's just the people in the balcony that are on the narrow road. I don't know the percentages, and I don't really care what the percentages are. I don't think it's our job to figure out what percentage of humanity God is working in to save. I think what is important is that we consider that there are few that find the narrow road. we got to make sure individually that we're part of the few. Would you agree? So that's what he's calling us to this morning. He's saying, be sure... You're on the right road because many miss it. The majority of people are on the wide road. Thugs and gangsters and really bad people. Really nice people. Your neighbor who loves his family, goes to work every day, operates in integrity, but he's never considered his need of Jesus as a savior. On the wide road. People who worship other gods. Church attending people who do good to feel better about themselves. They're on the wide road. So the first reason that Jesus gives to enter by the narrow gate is many miss it. Here's the second. The wide way is easy. 
text says the way is easy that leads to destruction. Not to follow Jesus is the easy move. To live like the world is our natural tendency. Nobody has to remind me not to pray. I do that naturally. I, I, I rely on myself. I try to solve my own problems first. I have to be reminded to get on my knees and acknowledge that God is creator. He's in control. That I have to be reminded of. To, to count on my own strength, that's easy. Nobody has to remind me to eat. I'm, I'm really good at that. But I have to be reminded sometimes to fast, like we talked about earlier in this message. No one has to encourage me or remind me to hold a grudge, to let bitterness take root in my heart. I do that naturally. It's the forgiveness part that I need to be encouraged. Nobody has to remind me to treasure earthly things. That comes naturally. I like to live for myself. I like to be my own idol, my own God. Quite honestly, I think I'm a fairly attractive um, idol. <laughs> I'm actually surprised more of you don't worship me more often. Um, that's, that's easy, and we blend in with the world. It is an easy thing to live for ourselves because that's what the other people on the wide road are doing. It becomes a little bit more awkward when we're not like everybody else, when we're um, passionate about something that the majority of people are not passionate about. So I would just say that um, July and the end of June, it's been a really, really good season in my life because I'm a soccer fan and the World Cup has been going on. Anybody get into the World Cup? Oh yeah, I got people, like you don't even know what soccer is. You're raising your hand because you've been following the World Cup because that's what people do one out of every four one month out of every four years. So all of a sudden I can talk about the World Cup and I can be passionate and excited about it and I don't look weird. But by the end of July, the World Cup will be over and I live in the United States and nobody cares. And I'm not gonna be talking about soccer anymore because I feel unusual, I, I, it's awkward, like nobody cares. Let me press on this for a minute. If you don't feel some awkwardness as a follower of Jesus Christ living in this world, if you don't feel some tension, if you look like everyone else, then Jesus is going to press in on you during this message and he's going to say, be careful you didn't miss the gate. Be careful you're not on the easy road. It's easy to look like the world, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, we were called earlier in the message to be salt and light. There should be something about you that is distinctive it is different. The path to destruction is gradual. The descent is easy. The slope is subtle. It's almost unnoticeable. A couple months ago, I was with a group of about 100 from our church in Israel. And we were down in the Judean wilderness, and we were there, and it was really hot. The temperatures were getting up to about 105 every day that we were there in the Judean wilderness. And we went to this uh, archaeological site called Masada. And Masada is up on this high hill. It was kind of the last stand, kind of the, is, uh, the Hebrew Alamo when Rome was overthrowing them. Some of the last um, zealots were up on this mountain defending this high fortress. And when we got there to see the archaeological site, we got there about 9 a.m., so it was only about 92 degrees when we got there. And some of the people in our group, some of the younger people, some of the more fit people, some of the men with middle-aged crisis who had to prove something. They wanted to climb what is called the snake's trail 
up to the top of Masada. You see it there on the, on the side? It's, it's a tough climb, particularly in that type of heat. There's also a trolley that goes there. You get up there in two minutes. I'm like, I'm, we're, we're going on the trolley. <laughs> and some of the guys are like, can we go? I know you guys want to go on the trolley. Can we go on the snake trail? And I'm like, no. Why? Because that would be stupid. <laughs> that would be foolish. No, we really want to go. I dismissed that idea. I'm in charge of the tour. I don't want anybody getting sick or getting tired or passing out on me or having a heat stroke halfway up. When you're on the narrow road, when you're on the difficult path, sometimes the world is going to dismiss you. They're going to look at your choice and they're going to say, that's a foolish decision. Why would somebody choose a difficult path when an easy path or opportunity is available? There's no warning signs on the wide road that the bridge is out. Please note that the wide road leads, the text says, to destruction, verse 13. In verse 19, it's going to say that those who are on the wide road are thrown into the fire. And maybe most tragic, verse 23, those that choose the wide road will eventually face their creator, their judge, Jesus, and he will pronounce the words, depart from me. See, as you go down this road, you are picking up speed. And by the time you realize the bridge is out, by the time your headlights flash against open water, it's too late to stop the car. It is a gradual descent that leads to destruction. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, I think I'm going to cheat on my wife today. Nobody wakes up and says, well, I think I'll try heroin this morning. Those are gradual descents, decisions, rebellion, frustration, hurt, sorrow that eventually lead you down a path. The guy that cheats on his wife has probably been looking at things that he shouldn't have been looking on online. He's been engaging in flirtations that he shouldn't have entertained. And all of a sudden, he steps over a line and sin takes you somewhere gradually and you wake up and you find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be. That's the wide road. It's interesting, when you're on the wide road, I would just say everybody bases their identity on something and as many different people as we have in this room, there could be that many different things for you to base your identity on. Some of you are, are smart, some of you are good looking, some of you are athletic, some of you are successful, you're, you're wonderful parents. All of these are good things, but if they become the main thing, danger, they can become your identity. You guys might not know this, but it's interesting, in a, in a church this big, we've got some some pretty interesting people. We've got a guy at our church that attends every week, and he was last year the bodybuilding champion of Grand Rapids. He's Mr. Grand Rapids. It's not me. Don't, don't look at me. Okay, it's a, it's a big guy. And uh, you can see how that could grab somebody's identity. Uh, week after week, a guy attends our church. He's a NHL Hockey Hall of Fame goalie. Got another person. They're a nationally ranked. They're a champion in pickleball. Whatever that is, okay? <laughs> We've got, um, we've got a guy at our church week after week. He is in charge of heart transplants at Spectrum in Grand Rapids. Like, like I think about the, the pressure and stress that that guy is under with what he does. We've got a lot of people who do some pretty impressive things. And if you're not careful, the things that you do can become who you are. They can become your identity. And on the 
wide path when our identity is shaped by things that are not Jesus Christ, I need you to know that always your identity is at risk. The puck can go through your legs. If you're playing pickleball, you can accidentally step into the kitchen. Listen, your identity is at risk. It creates anxiety and tension. It's fragile. I was reading this week. It's interesting, Ivy League schools. So the brightest of our brightest, the top in their class across the country, many of them will attend Ivy League schools. You might find it interesting that in 2012, a study was done and it showed that the suicide rate at Harvard was around twice the national average for other colleges. In 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics found that 24%, nearly one in four students of Ivy League schools habitually use stimulates, stimulants or ADHD drugs to help them study. Why? These people are goofy smart. They're at the top schools. Why are they struggling with depression to the point of suicide. Why are they having to take stimulants to study for tests to get better grades? Because where they grew up, their identity was their intelligence. They were the best of the best, but they get to the Ivy League and they're just another smart kid in a sea of smart kids. And their identity, they have a self-quake. That's what life is like on the wide road when we choose something else for identity. I never had that problem that those Ivy League kids face. I went to Cornerstone, a small Christian school from a small Christian high school where I played baseball and I got a scholarship to go to Cornerstone. I was the best baseball player at my high school, 280 kids. I was something. And uh, I got to Cornerstone. I remember in one of my first games, I was playing against Aquinas College, and I'm a left-handed batter, and I was facing a left-handed pitcher. His name was Paul Ossenmacher. He would go on and pitch for the Cubs and for Cleveland. And I stepped into the batter's box. I'm ready to go. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm a cocky freshman. And this guy throws his first pitch. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it slipped out of his hand or what, but it is coming right at my ear. And it was coming so fast, I couldn't figure out if I should fall forward or backwards to get out of the way. So in that split second, I just slumped in the batter's box. I just hit my knees. And the ump said, strike one. It was a curveball. <laughs> in that moment, my identity as a baseball player was gone in an instant. And, and see, that's the risk when we live for ourselves, when we make our identity something that isn't rooted and founded in who Jesus says that we are. Here's good news. Well, let me give you a third point first. The wide road is easy. The narrow road is difficult. Look at verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The King James Version says, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth to life and few there uh, be that find it. So you guys have heard of the straight and narrow, right? Like, oh, I'm on the straight and narrow. Like I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this. That's not even what this verse is talking about. The word straight, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T is not in the text. The word here is straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. That's a different word. And what a straight means, if you look up the definition, it is usually a, a narrow, 
um, treacherous channel that divides two larger bodies of water. An example of this would be the Strait of Gibraltar. It separates the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Sea. Two bodies of water, but to get from one to the other, you've got to go through a narrowed, narrower passage, and it often talks about putting you under pressure. It's difficult. It's dangerous. This strait is where we get our word straitjacket from. It, it confines you. It restricts you. Uh, people talk about, well, I'm in dire straits. That's not just an 80 band. And, uh, dire straits. The idea that I'm in a difficult situation. So when it's talking about this narrow gate implied in it, is that it's going to squeeze us a little bit. We're going to be under some pressure. The entry point to the narrow gate is where Jesus started this sermon. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It starts with repentance. And for some, that repentance is letting go of your identity and realizing that you need something greater than yourself and that is difficult because you're releasing something that you value greatly. John 10, 9 says, I am the door. Jesus talking about himself, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The promise that scripture gives us is though the gate is narrow and you're leaving a wide path when you choose to go through the narrow gate, if you get to the other side, if you're willing to go through the narrow gate, what opens up for you is what's really life. That's the promise. But the problem is the gate is narrow. You can only go through it one person at a time. Kids, you're not carried through the gate on the faith of your parents. Parents, you can't carry your kids through. You can't carry worldly treasures through the narrow gate. Whatever defines your identity on this side of the gate, it needs to be left behind as you enter through the narrow gate. We face a crisis, we face a decision point. And Jesus is saying, anyone who is not with me, they're on the broad path. Now listen, it's not bad to excel in things, but Jesus is calling for surrender. He's saying, I want you to realize that you are in desperate need of a savior, and I want to be your main thing, not just a thing amongst many things. Following Jesus is a choice. You will find yourself now not drifting downstream with the current. You are paddling upstream. It is a difficult path. Here's the good news. When you consider the identity of the people that find themselves on the wide road, we already talked about it's always at risk. When you enter through the narrow gate and you make your identity identity your goal in life, your mission of living for Jesus Christ, you know that identity can never be taken from you? It's permanent. He loves you. He's forgiven you. No matter your week, no matter your day, no matter your performance, your identity is never at risk. You are forgiven and loved and accepted and never abandoned. So there's two gates, make a choice. Here's the second thing, look at verse 15. There's two gospels, watch carefully. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Notice that I said, beware false prophets, watch carefully. Don't listen to what they say, watch how they live. That's the warning. Who are these false prophets? Well, first of all, just look at what the text says to describe them. They, they talk about in Jesus' name, they're professing Christians. They refer to him as Lord. They claim to be following Jesus. They are able to perform signs, wonders, doing the works of the Lord. Jesus says, beware their words. What they say, it doesn't line up with who they are. And I would just argue from this text that sometimes our words are not the greatest indicator of where we are in our walk with Jesus Christ. You can talk about something like you know it without ever knowing it. So think back to our Israel trip a couple months ago. Something really unusual happens to our worship pastor, Chris Moeller, when he goes on vacation. He begins to post and to post and to post and to post on Facebook, picture after picture, post after post, about what he's doing. He's so excited about what he's doing, he does all of these posts. So, because our love language on staff is um, ridicule um, <laughs> and sarcasm, some of the guys, when Chris got back from the trip, his office was wallpapered by all of his Facebook posts that he made <laughs> while he was on his trip. Now listen, do not feel bad for Chris Moeller because he can dish it out just as well as he can take it. And I would argue that nobody on staff gets ridiculed more than me, okay? So just you gotta know that. So he comes back, his wall is like this. Now, maybe one of you, I would come up to you and you would say, man, you know, what was the best part of your year so far? Man, I love the Israel trip. Floating in the Dead Sea was incredible. And up by the Sea of Galilee and seeing the headwaters of the Jordan River and then going into Jerusalem and going to the, um, the site of the tomb, man, that was a fantastic trip. And I'm thinking, I don't remember that guy in Israel with us. And I'm like, what bus were you on? Were you on the green bus or were you on the blue bus? And the guy goes, I wasn't on any bus. I was watching Chris Moeller's posts. <laughs> I'd be like, you're delusional. You weren't there. Um, your Facebook friends, you know they're not really friends, right? You get that. But sometimes we can believe because, well, I would just say this, my fear is for some, they believe that they're Christians because they hang around other Christians and they can regurgitate the actions and the words of the people that are truly following Christ without ever knowing Jesus personally. And Jesus is saying, beware. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now as I look at narrow gates and wide gates, it hasn't um, passed my attention that our church has grown quickly in the eight years since we've launched. And, and, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about Transform Lives. I'm, a, I'm, I'm excited that people are hearing the gospel, but when I see a church grow quickly, even our own church, there's a check in my spirit. As a shepherd, as one of the elders, as one of the men who has to give an account for this church, and I see people coming and parking lots full, I go, are we making the gospel the wide gate? Are we true to God's word? Are we there's a warning in Jeremiah 
And Jeremiah speaks to the prophets of his day as Israel is walking in rebellion. They are not walking with the Lord. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6, speaking of the leaders, the, the religious leaders, he says, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And Jeremiah goes on and says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But the people said, we will not walk in it. And my concern, even as we open a passage, I cannot sugarcoat the words of Jesus. He is drawing your attention to something with eternal consequences. You have to make a choice. It is yours to make. I can't tell the difference. False prophets, true prophets, people that are following Christ to feel good about themselves for the good things that they're doing, and someone who really knows Jesus, it's almost impossible to tell them by the things that they say. And Jesus is saying, examine your heart. This is his invitation. Don't be misled. Get back to the ancient path. Get back to the narrow gate. I was thinking about this this week. What are some of the false teachers and beliefs in our day? We talk about these. We hopefully warn you about these quite often. I'll just quickly give you four. Here's the first one. Work salvation. There is no naughty and nice list. Do not confuse Santa Claus and Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that doesn't demand that you perform at a certain level for God to accept you. Your salvation, based off the message of the gospel and the words of Jesus Christ, we are all sinners, we are in desperate need of grace, and through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, God has provided a way of forgiveness and reconciliation. Someone's teaching you, well, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. I'm telling you, that's a false gospel. Beware, you're on the wrong path. Here's a second one. Well, I would, I would before I go there, it's not what you do, but then I've got to swing the pendulum the other way. There's some that teach you, well, as a Christian, all you've got to do is accept the grace, and you don't even have to change. It's possible to be a Christian without ever showing any distinction, any fruit. I'm telling you, that's a false gospel. It flies in the face of everything Jesus is saying in this passage. He spent this whole sermon saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to be different from the world. So it's not that you earn your salvation, but it's also not that nothing changes. Here's a second. Unity rules. Unity rules. I cannot explain to you how often I'm confronted with a choice, with a decision, where somebody is asking me to embrace diversity in lifestyles, in, religion, in religious beliefs. We are under pressure constantly, even within our own community, with other churches, to basically embrace things that aren't the gospel. All religions don't lead to God. Christianity is not a path to the top of the mountain where God is, and Islam is another path that leads to the same place. That's false teaching. Beware. The Muslims don't believe that, but I'm asked to embrace it. 
Unity is not. Inclusiveness is not the goal. Being true to the words of Jesus Christ is what we're after. Here's a third, victim mentality. Man, this is popular in our culture. And there are some, even in this room, that would say, I've been trying to follow Jesus, but I gotta tell you, I'm a little bit disappointed with how this transaction is going. See, see, I said that I would do certain things for Jesus, and my expectation was that if I did certain things for Jesus, that he would do certain things for me. And if I attended church, I, th I thought my kids would turn out halfway decent. I thought if I did this, and I would have a level of success here, and, and your um, view of following Jesus is that it is a transaction where you take a piece of paper, and you write down what you're going to do, and then you sign it, you slide it across the table, and God writes down the things he's going to do, and then he signs it. And all of a sudden you find that life isn't working that way and as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you're in more of a wilderness than you ever imagined. And you're disappointed and, and, and honestly you feel like a, like a victim. Here's how the gospel works. You take that contract, you sign it, and you slide it across the table to a holy God and you say fill in the rest however you want. I'm going to follow you regardless of what you bring into my life. And if I never see any more grace than the grace that you showed me on the cross, I will praise your name for all of eternity for what you've already accomplished on my behalf. Enough of the victim mentality. And then here's a fourth. Talked about this last week. I'm not going to talk about it at length right now. A prosperity gospel or a poverty gospel. The idea that our stuff is the key, that we've either got to give all our stuff to the Lord and, and, and be poor or worrying about people that say if you follow Jesus that he's going to give you health and the, all the things of your dreams and pastors and jets and all of that wonderful stuff. 1 Timothy 6, 3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. gain. Nonsense. God isn't concerned about our stuff. He's concerned when our stuff has us. He's looking for surrender. Let me try to illustrate this with kind of an unusual example. When, when I was dating Kristen, um, Kristen and her dad, Chris, my father-in-law, and I got into a battle, he said, uh, I don't want you dating my daughter anymore. We were high school sweethearts. That battle developed into a war that went nuclear when I eloped with his daughter. Oh, yeah. So, so, so for the next six years, the first six years of our marriage, um, there was an um, awkward, tense treaty. There were a lot of border skirmishes. Uh, nobody was dropping their weapons. And I remember Kristen was pregnant with Catherine, our second child, about six years into the marriage, and Kristen's dad approached me and this was a huge move on his part towards peace. He said, listen, I want you to come work um, in our family business. And uh, I know you're, you're hardworking, and I know you've you know, loved my daughter this last six years, and, and I, he's trying to bury the hatchet, 
And he says, I want you to come work for me. And uh, I remember, I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he was like, how dare you ask me that question? I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to have you do. I'm offering you a chance to work in the family business. I'm never going to offer this again. The decision is yours. you got 24 hours. Let me know tomorrow what you want to do. And I went home and I talked to Kristen, and um, I, I'm going to tell you, I didn't want to do it. I, I, was, I was willing to continue to fight. And um, what he was looking for in that moment, he wasn't looking to employ me. He wasn't looking to give me an opportunity. He was looking for surrender. He wanted me to lay my sword down. And in that moment, I had to make a decision. Am I going to surrender or am I going to keep fighting? That's what a narrow gate looks like. Here's a third thing. Two gates, two gospels, one judgment, stand ready. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many, again, that word, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I got to tell you, I've read those verses many times. And I would just ask this question. As you read those verses, is there something inside of you that that's a little scary? Like, there's something about those verses to get to the end, to stand before your judge, believing that you know him and you don't know him. That, that, like, that's a little scary. And Jesus is trying to scare you. Now, i got to be careful. I have um, huge compassion for people in this room who believe that they can lose their salvation every time they fall short. That's just not in the... God's word. It's not true. God can hold and protect what he saves. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I also worry about people who come into this room struggling to believe that God could ever love them because they're struggling to love and accept themselves because they know that they constantly fall short of what God would have them do and who God would have them be. And please hear me, the standard of who is a follower of Jesus Christ is not the perfection of your walk. That would make it about you, not what he did. Earlier in this same message, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's an acknowledgement that every day we're going to fall short. It's not perfection that Jesus is striving after, but what he is looking for is priority in how we choose to live our lives. Jesus never asked us for perfection. So as you get and you look at these verses and you see these men who call Lord, Lord, fully expecting God to forgive them and let them into heaven, but they are cast away what went wrong? Why were these men surprised? 
It's very, very simple. Look at the text. Where did they hang their hopes on whether or not God would accept them? They said, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we accomplish this? They were hanging their hopes on their accomplishments. They pulled their resume before a holy God. That's a mistake. When you stand before a holy God for judgment, and we all will, the resume that you pull at that moment is the resume of Jesus Christ, your Savior, and what he accomplished for you on the cross. That's what saves you. Don't be fooled in this moment. Depart from me. There are men who have made history with their accomplishments and their accomplishments for the Lord, and some of those men will hear those words, depart from me, because they put their faith in what they were accomplishing rather than what Jesus had accomplished. God is not impressed with our victories, our successes, or our accomplishment, and heaven will be full of people that history has forgotten. Simple people. So who's entered the narrow gate? It's the wife, it's the mom who gets up every morning and prays and worships. Says, hallowed be your name. And God's a priority. And maybe she lives in obscurity. And maybe her kids are struggling, but she continues to pray, and she's a warrior, and she is serving quietly, loving the Lord, going about her business. She's a woman devoted to prayer. And that lady shows up before Jesus one day, and she will not hear the words, depart from me. Jesus will welcome her with open arms. And I believe he will reveal to her in eternity how her prayers impacted, affected, and led other people to Jesus Christ. The narrow gate is for the man. Maybe he's not all that gifted, not all that talented. But he's faithful to his wife. He loves his kids. He goes to work every day. He's passed over for promotions that maybe he deserves but he doesn't let the disappointment consume him. He continues to put his faith in God. He opens his word and strives to be a man of integrity and loves Jesus and praises him for what Jesus has done for him. That guy's on the narrow road. It's the mom who gets the diagnosis that she has cancer. And in that moment, fear grips her heart and she worries about her kids. But through prayer, she makes the choice the conscious choice of the will to turn this situation over to the Lord. And she says, how can I be a salt and light in spite of the fact that I'm going through this trial, in spite of the fact that I don't feel good, in spite of the fact that chemo's just crushing me? And she goes to her chemo treatment every week and she has a smile on her face and she tells people about Jesus, people that are broken and in desperate need of hope. See, that lady's on the narrow gate. It says in 1 Timothy 2, Christ is, uh, or I'm sorry, Paul is writing to Timothy. He is encouraging him to submit to his leaders and to pray for them. 
And he says, pray for kings and those who are in high positions that, they may lead a, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Here, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not for sending you to hell. He's not for declaring the words, depart from me. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, his some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The worst four words you can hear in history is God, Jesus, creator, king, judge, saying, depart from me, I never knew you. But please hear me, that's not the heart of our Savior towards you. He's saying, I never knew you, but I pursued you, and I loved you, and I tried to get your attention, and I kept calling you, but you refused to know me. So as we close, here's a question. Why did Jesus go with this invitation? Why this message at this part of the sermon? Quite honestly, we ended last week with, hey, do unto others as they would, you would like them to do unto you. He could have just as easily said, bow your heads, let's close in prayer, you're dismissed right there. Would have been a great sermon. But he drops this on us at the end of the sermon because he wants to get our attention. He wants to force a decision. Jesus is forcing a decision. It is yes or no, and I'm not sure is no. He's pointing to a judgment that's in the future, not to scare us, but to get our attention. If I knew today what the markets were going to do tomorrow, I'd know exactly where to invest. Jesus is saying, this is what tomorrow looks like. Don't be fooled. Don't run with the masses. Pick the narrow road. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, you've got to surrender some things. But I'm telling you, what's on the other side is absolute life. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is not, if I choose to go through the narrow road, can I live that kind of life? The question we need to ask ourselves is, is there any other life worth living? Because that's what Jesus is saying. And sadly, even as one of your pastors, I don't know your hearts. But God does. And he's not fooled. And the stakes are high. And a choice needs to be made. And Jesus is asking for surrender. Where's your heart? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for... Um, telling us what we need to hear. Not always what we want to hear, not always what we enjoy hearing, but loving us enough to tell us what's real, what's true. And uh, Father, I would pray for those in this room who struggle to believe that you could love them. Father, pierce their hearts. Remind them that there is nothing on earth, in heaven, today, yesterday, or tomorrow that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ.
encourage the hearts of the wounded who are trying to follow you, stumbling, falling short, getting back up, seeking repentance. Father, I would pray that these words from Matthew would not shake the confidence of the true follower of Jesus Christ. But Father, I pray at the same time, I pray that you would open the eyes of those who believe that they're followers of you, but they are not. And their life does not reflect it and they haven't made the choice and there's been no surrender. Father, we thank you for your grace. We're warned when we hear your voice, don't harden our hearts. That when we feel conviction, we need to respond because we don't know what tomorrow holds. And I would pray that even some today would have the courage to confess that my heart's not in the right place. I'm on the wrong road. I haven't gone through the difficult gate. And may they be met, ordinary people. May they be met and impressed by an incredible Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.